Well, so welcome back to the Kiwi Innovators podcast. The times, I think I said last time with the intro to Rajesh, the times they are changing. We live in a, a new world. And I think that this interview this week with uh, Asa Cox, the CEO and founder of Arcanum AI, is is exceptionally poignant. Asa's obviously, it's a startup organization, privately owned. So it, it plays in this space that could be both very negatively impacted by what we're going through with the COVID-19 virus. And because it's an AI company and they can work remotely, it has the ability to provide AI capability that can help us in the current environment that we're in. So Asa has a, an exceptionally good experience with founding organizations. He gets the technology, but more importantly, he understands the business and how and how the business can use the technology to get the outcomes that they, they are looking to get. So it's a really good interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Welcome back to the Kiwi Innovators podcast. This is an interview with Asa Cox, who I've known for a year, year and a half. Mm, yeah. Yeah, about a year and a half. Asa is a serial entrepreneur. Can I, can I say that? I guess you can, by definition of starting multiple companies, yeah. It sounds a bit more glamorous than uh, the reality of that administration. Yeah, so, so let's jump right into it. Asa, can you give me a little bit of your history as a serial entrepreneur and how you got into technology and, and what's driven you to get there? So from a young age, I've had an interest in technology but um, not being patient or technical enough or mathematical enough to actually get into coding i've always done it through um, vicarious means and that's typically through uh, video games and, uh, and and through the internet when that came around my education was purely business so i did entrepreneurialism at university and that kind of took me on that path but i spent 15 years in, in pharmaceuticals of all things getting involved with global business development and licensing. But in 2008, I span out of the family business, a data consulting practice. And that's what really began to get me into technology from a entrepreneurial perspective. Took a whole bunch of data and put it onto a subscription platform and, and then started selling um, that data to pharmaceutical companies around the world. And so that's when we first built a, a platform, when I first found out how challenging software developers are um, <laughs> how important it is to understand user journeys and user experience and all that kind of nice stuff and um, but also the power of data itself coming from as i say probably 10 years of trying to do deals on physical products and then being able to make money from just data and um, was really something quite transformative to, for the way that i thought about things and then when i came to new zealand just over six years ago now it was an opportunity to and pivot my career, get out of pharmaceuticals and really focus down on the things that I love to do, which was data, technology, and storytelling in some respects. So the first thing I did actually was, was start a digital marketing agency. Um, I didn't really know anybody here apart from my wife's family. So doing digital marketing for small businesses helped me to get networked uh, and through the wonderful um, small community of Wellington in New Zealand, I met a few people that um, helped me kickstart and my journey into deep tech, into artificial intelligence and machine learning, and told enough stories and drank enough coffee for people to start, and for some reason, listening to what I was talking about, and we managed to parlay that into a business, which is now called Arcane. Yeah, so I, I'd be interested, because New Zealand's quite a different culture to my history in the U.S. as far as business and startups and things go did, i mean uh, did you find it different here the process for how you got engaged with other people to begin down that process to create a company and and build the contacts to be able to build that company yeah I mean, one thing that definitely positively surprised me having spent most of my time in in europe and the uk and then before i came to new zealand in north america and canada that i spent a lot of um, time doing business in in the us was really how uh, open and um, keen people were to meet me because i had a different background i was talking about a new topic and um, it was really quick and easy to get to people to have you know pretty senior people join for a coffee and have a chat 
and it really was just a lot of working networks and working referrals and just reaching out to people. But it was just the openness and the support that the New Zealand um, business community and especially the startup community in Wellington showed me was, was incredibly encouraging compared to slogging through layers and layers of bureaucracy and uh, receptionists and assistants that just want to protect their uh, executives from anybody that might be bothering them. In New Zealand, it was, you know, as long as you didn't take more than half an hour, you bought a decent coffee, um, then you can pretty much have a conversation with anybody. And that was, you know, incredibly encouraging and really was a platform that I, I managed to use. After meeting a few CEOs who introduced me to a few others, and you get to then understand how the difference is in New Zealand can be beneficial to you, um, having come from outside. It was really then that, that storytelling and those conversations which just led from one thing to another. And the, the speed at which um, organizations can be created here, hence the serial entrepreneur, it's very easy to start a business um, in New Zealand. The, the lack of um, bureaucracy, the lack of um, government um, red tape, you know, it's, it's refreshing how quickly things can get done. And having more recent experience and um, trying to set up companies again in Europe as part of our expansion, you begin to realize how blessed we are to be in New Zealand and how easy things are here for us to do business. Yeah, that, that's been my experience as well. Uh, getting, you, you can just sit down with anybody. It's not a, I can reach out on LinkedIn to a CEO and next week sit down and have a, you know, 15, 20 minute coffee with the CEO and, you know, pick his brain and see where they think stuff is going. So I, I completely agree with you. The starting up businesses, it does appear to be easier and faster in, in New Zealand. I think you're completely right about that. I know there are some there are some people out there in my LinkedIn network that have some heartburn about, and and I think you and I have talked about this as well, is, is the government helping to provide at least some direction to the business world, some kind of strategic direction for New Zealand as a country, being that we're a much smaller country, that those have a big play. But I think you're right from the aspect of starting up a company. Uh, I feel New Zealand is, is a much easier place to do that in. So uh, you've mentioned Arcanum a couple times now. So I know that Arcanum's the platform. Uh, I might have intimate knowledge about that. But there are two or three other products within that AI space that you're running as separate companies. What does your the AI technology landscape look like for you from, from within your business? Yeah, so I mean, coming back, I guess, to the origin of the company, when we first started talking about artificial intelligence, people had really no clue what that was. I mean, their perception of it was either Terminator or chatbots, which were pretty nascent then too. Yeah. So we kind of moved around looking at recommendation engines, because again, being in North America, Amazon had the, um, you bought this, you might like to buy this. And so when I assume talking to people here, that would be an obvious kind of example of machine learning, but TradeMe hadn't even begun to do that at that point. So that didn't really work out either. And what we really hit upon that got us some traction was the understanding that it was a resource, a human resource challenge specifically, because there wasn't a great deal of data scientists or specialist machine learning software engineers. And that was what was holding New Zealand back more broadly from being able to embrace and adopt artificial intelligence and, and even advanced analytics, really. And so in the very early days, we, as we were bootstrapping, we were trying to get whatever projects we could to, to build some use cases, to get some traction, to show that you didn't have to rely on some of the big technology organizations to be able to build something. And so we did some very early work with Christchurch City Council, Ministry of Primary Industries, New Zealand Police Innovation Center. And those were across a broad range of, of topics. Some of it was kind of relatively standard big data transformation. Some of it was pretty cutting edge machine vision. And some of it was um, some pretty, pretty good natural language processing type projects. And it's those early, early days of bootstrapping that this really meant we've had to work across a whole bunch of different domains. And so now we do have a number of products that fit into uh, under the umbrella of artificial intelligence, but we do now cover quite genuinely uh, big data and natural language processing, machine vision, and now actually we're getting into audio processing too uh, with our first US client. And so we've kind of got, from all the work that we've had to have done to survive and thrive in New Zealand, we now work across all these areas. We've worked across multiple industries. So now we kind of have, we're pulling together this platform that has 
80% of the components for probably 80% of the use cases. And so now we can build, um, rapidly build a whole bunch of stuff. But out of that has also come an understanding that in certain industries, you really need to go narrow and deep. You, you can't just go the horizontal and go very thin. You need to go a bit deeper. And because I've got a, a love for sport, um, we um, have built out a sport product, um, which is a joint venture with Dot Loves Data, which is called Play in the Gray. And that's a machine vision platform. Um, and we were really delighted to have New Zealand Rugby uh, as an early investor in that entity and the user of the product for the Rugby World Cup. And then we've also um, spun out a uh, automated analytics platform called Farago. And that is focused on the non-data scientist, of which most of us are. Uh, I definitely can't call myself a data scientist. But being me, able to have um, predictive analytics capability within an organization where you don't have to invest in a large team of data scientists or specialist engineers to get started, we recognize that that was it. So do you think we're, I mean, I know, so I talk with a lot of people out of the U.S. and Europe the same as you do. A need in the market too. And so we, we created a product specifically for that. So, and of course, New Zealand, New Zealand tends to lag just a little bit behind in it, like enterprise level adoption of technologies, but also tends to run ahead with early adoption, proof of concept and, and s small adoption. Do you think we're starting, we're just at the beginning of what AI is going to do, or do you think we're, we're finally hitting our stride worldwide and seeing AI adoption as more than just pet projects within organizations. Yeah, you're right. It's definitely the experience we've had is there's been a lot of organizations of big, big enterprises, government agencies, plus small and medium sized businesses really keen to give something a try to see what's possible. But then the actual strategic or enterprise level adoption is much slower. And I think whether that's because of the um, decision making processes or the procurement or the vendor landscape, whatever it may be, um, we don't see a lot of really strategic application of artificial intelligence like we do in, in Western Europe and North America and now actually in Southeast Asia too. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of really good initiatives, which you said are kind of ahead of the curve. But New Zealand is definitely lagging in terms of enterprise application. Yeah. I think globally there is a realization that artificial intelligence is a competitive advantage if you can deploy it and if you can make use of it and get that return on investment be ahead of your competitors. I think it's still another time horizon. That's probably three or four years before it becomes known as software rather than artificial intelligence, where it is just the default. Um, when you start talking about analytics, you don't have to um, mention machine learning. It just becomes embedded into the whole practice. So I think it's still a while away before we get there. There's still a lack of real understanding at a C-suite level as to what's possible. And the fact that it doesn't have to cost a huge amount of money and doesn't rely on a massive team of experts from one of the big consulting companies to make it make it work. And so that that's definitely happening, I think, more in countries that aren't encumbered by uh, a lot of legacy okay, in terms of their data and their systems. So Southeast Asia, from the research we've been doing, is, is really making leaps of problems in, into big uh, country-wide, industry-wide adoption. Uh, and in some markets, uh, Northern Europe, you know, we think of places like Estonia and Finland and Sweden that you know, are probably further ahead than most. And even Central and Latin America, there's still a lot of pockets, you know, Colombia, Mexico, there's little pockets, but there's still so much opportunity out there and so much more to be done um, that we are really just at the very, very beginning of what is going to be a like, transformational technology. Yeah, that's a, that's what I'm seeing as well, is that business adoption of AI and ML seems, or at least adoption is probably not the right word, experimentation is the right word, but on the technology, enterprise technology side, they're still trying to figure out what, what they want to do. And so I think I think a lot of that's driving it is, is most AI ML projects are one-off, completely custom projects from the top to the bottom. I know that Arcanum's starting to build the idea of a platform for AI. Do you think that platform play is going to be, at least at the service provider level, is going to be the thing that makes it easier to make AI just another piece of technology within the strategic direction of businesses? I think it kind of has to. I mean, obviously, 
there's the massive tech companies which truly have enterprise platforms, the Googles and the AWSs and the Microsofts and so on, and and they're already well embedded into those enterprise organizations for you know, for their legacy and for their scope and breadth and their, their simple size. But I think, yes, it needs to get away from very siloed, task-specific or function-specific application. I think that does um, cause the C-suite to to try and put it in little boxes rather than looking at it as a, a, a fundamental enabling technology. And so I think platforms are going to be the way in which a broader adoption uh, happens. So it moves from task and function specific experiments into, okay, now we want to empower all of our capability with machine learning and AI. How do we do that? How do we actually have a an AI layer or how do we have a, a data layer which is empowered by machine learning? And there are the kinds of discussions which are just beginning to happen now, but it's going to take not just a technology change, but a cultural change, a transformation, which is a word we've been talking about for a long time. And I think there's transformation fatigue, um, but the speed at which technology is changing means there is going to have to be another transformation of, yep, we may have our data in the cloud now, or there's still that process of migration, yet we may have some workloads running in the cloud. But now we've done all of that, how do we begin to really get value from all of that? How do we get the decision-making insights? How do we build better products, better services? How do we save time and save money? Um, and especially in you know, the, the world as it is now um, in COVID, what's post-COVID going to look like? Uh, and what kind of transformation will that stimulate? Is this really a time for AI to play a really major role in the, the reimagination of what enterprises can look like? Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. On the larger cloud platforms that have AI, I've done quite a bit of digging into AWS's SageMaker and Microsoft's machine learning platform and done a little bit of digging into Google. And I think I think most of their platforms are aimed at those data scientists more than they're aimed at, you know, simple business adoption of a technology. In my mind, I think about, you know, if an ICT department is running any kind of servers at all, they, they think about, okay, well, we've got Windows servers, we've got Linux servers, the next versions look like this, this is how we're going to deploy them. But until AI becomes, like you said, just a software platform that they treat the same way, I think that that I think that will be the inflection point, right? So when uh, large multinationals and large organizations and enterprises go, yeah, we just have this software platform that provides AI ML, just like we have an exchange platform that provides email, and these are the capability that we're going to get out of it. I think IBM has tried to do that with Watson, but in the last four or five years with Watson, they've really moved it into a cloud service, large cloud service only for the the most part, and then only small Watson modules that can be run in-house. So it's kind of a cloud platform play as, as I see it. Does that, do you see it the same way? Yeah, I mean, the, the different players have uh, nuances in their strategies, right? It's really interesting. I think IBM, as you say, came out really big. They got people to sign up to 12-month contracts on you know, Bluemix credits and that kind of stuff to really go, right, we're going to be in there, and anybody that wants to start doing some enterprise-level experiments, therefore, they're going to work with us. But um, in New Zealand specifically, I can't talk to other countries, there wasn't the support for what's on the ground actually helps organizations use those credits and so people are like well if this is ai then we haven't got any return on investment i think that did that did the industry a bit of a damage in new zealand i think google's an interesting one they've just announced the deal with trainee which is a pretty pretty big coup for google in yeah. new zealand yeah um but they're yes they do have the kind of engineering and software kind of layer for iml um, but they're actually kind of focused more on and productizing some of those enterprise needs, which is really interesting. Yeah. And um, Microsoft obviously embedded all over the place and have done really well with 365 migrations and moving everything to Azure. And and you know, they're already well known for their application layer, which certainly puts them in a really strong position. And then AWS is trying to be a bit more like Microsoft and Google, but is really still at the engineers level. And so they're the kind of building blocks to enable people to build it for themselves. And they're all trying to do some auto ML because they know that not everybody has data scientists 
um, and the business needs to start doing some stuff, not just software developers and teams in ICT. Yeah. I think what's going to be interesting is um, who actually will, within an organization, who will own that AI ML layer? Is it going to be ICT, like you said, when they move from an exchange server to an AI server, or whatever it's going to be called? Um, or is it going to be the chief data officer that says, nope, we need insights across the organization, and therefore that needs to be machine learning enabled? Um, is it going to be the CIO because they realize that they've got all this knowledge within the organization that they can only unlock using machine learning? And I think that there isn't any true patterns yet within enterprise to say this is the best way to adopt it or these are the um, programs of work or the, the workflows or the frameworks I think about. I don't think they've really surfaced yet. And the big four in consulting companies and the technology companies, um, I think they're trying to figure it out still too. So. As we talked about before, New Zealand Inc. not really having an AI strategy, it's still the same with the vast majority of enterprises as well. Yeah, that's what I've been seeing as well. And then for me, the the business outcomes, it, it's interesting. So if we look at Westpac New Zealand and what they've done with reimagining their entire environment in Agile, the traditional ICT people only own the core platform. So the underlying stuff that, that things get built on is owned at the ICT level that you and I would traditionally call ICT, but all of the development activity and the use of data and the use of smarts is owned by the business product owners that are out in the business. So I think you're right. I think the utilization of the AI, I think when we'll see, we'll be hitting our stride when we see AI platforms, I'm making air quotes, AI platforms can be adopted into an organization and then the business can come and own the applications that run on top of those platforms to get the outcomes that they're looking for. And then Mm. the traditional ICT or the core ICT people just maintain the platforms to continue supporting the applications. Yeah, I've seen a similar patterns to that around analytics where there's kind of a data science or analytics service within an, an enterprise and they are being enabled by ICT to be able to build those analytics products internally and then being able to push those products into the business for self-service. Yeah. But I think that kind of model is working well and for a number of organizations from an analytics and insights perspective. Uh, and maybe that is exactly what will happen in terms of machine learning and AI. Maybe there is an internal uh, team and a service that builds out products that push into the business. Yeah. I think... The only way there will be a true transformation is if the business owns the outcomes and is also capable of uh, building its products on top of a technology that doesn't necessarily need ICT to always build every component of it. And I think the strategies of the big tech companies around AutoML um, is a move towards that, is to en- enable the business to be able to drive demand for machine learning. because. As much as ITD traditionally owns the tech stacks, technology is moving so fast and is moving so fast away from legacy systems that enterprises have traditionally run on and cloud transformation and digitization of everything. I think they're really struggling to keep up. And, and actually, in a lot of the projects we've been involved in, they end up being the blockers rather than the enablers. Yeah, so no, there's, I, I, there's a retraining process required for ICT to enable rather than slow down. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree. I, I think. The challenge, and I see this across various technology stacks in, in enterprise enablement, is you don't want 10 platforms. You want one platform that, that the business can come to and get 10 different business outcomes off of. And you want that platform to be integrated so that you can take advantage of the other platforms that exist within the environment. And I think until I, a lot of ICTs are starting to get that, but a lot of them, like you said, the technology is moving so quickly and they have so much technical debt. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of NZTA and how much technical debt that they have right now. That technical debt is keeping the ICT departments from being able to bring that integrated platform to the business. And so in the vacuum, the business is just going out and picking and choosing their own and implementing their own. I had a really good, I uh, just posted a really good interview with Rajesh Jaluka, distinguished engineer out of IBM in New York. And he and I talked quite a bit about, you know, getting the business involved as part of the ownership of delivering the business outcomes, but th- through the use of the technology. 
And I think it really has to be, I think one of the things that will help AI and ML is, is if the business stops seeing it as a black box and starts getting involved in the development of the products that give them the business outcomes they they want. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Yeah, I think that's that's also one of the the downfalls of how AI is very hyped up as a as a technology, but the applications of it is somewhat um, lagging behind. So it's been a very academic promise, um, and you see all of the published papers, and you see all the stuff that the landmark kind of releases, but there hasn't been a great deal of translation of that technology into enterprise value. And so the business is only only just catching up on being able to understand uh, what this could mean for them in terms of you know increased profits, um, sales, product development, and so on and so forth. So I think, yes, the business needs to own it. And the, the projects that we've, the more recent projects that we've been involved in has been driven by the business side. The IT teams have gone, oh yeah, we, we want to play around with this. But then you talk to somebody who's either in innovation or in the C-suite, and they're like, look, we've got to make this project much broader in scope. We need this to enable multiple returns on investment, not just a, okay, that proof of concept was good, let's put it in production and it saved us X amount of dollars. It really needs to be able to move the needle strategically. And so there is a bit of an awakening, I think, to that. And partly that's because um, it's just taken this long for big enterprises to jump all in into machine learning and cloud. And that's what all of the big tech companies are promoting is their use cases. You can look on LinkedIn and all of them are saying, you know, here is another use case of XYZ globally famous enterprise jumping in into cloud. And this is the stuff they're doing with machine learning. And it's just going to take a bit of that to become normal. And then it's one of those conversations which will be not just on the agenda for a board meeting to what are we doing with this AI stuff to what is our AI strategy and how quickly can we get it up and run? So I've been pitching this for several years now, and I know that North America and Europe have adopted this and Asia even more so, but the nimbleness and agility they get from moving into the cloud to develop these new capabilities, has that, that's accelerated things. I mean, because traditionally... I mean, if we go back 20 years, if we had this new technology that did something, the first thing it would come out on is something like a mainframe or something. And that's a five to 10 year investment for you right. to do it. Whereas with cloud, if you're in the cloud and you're using cloud and, and the cloud service provider comes out with something or something comes out that can be built into the cloud, you can have that in a week. Yeah, I think one of the things that's definitely holding back certain countries, and that may well be up to the research specifically, but I imagine one of the leading signals to cloud adoption and therefore to data availability and therefore to machine learning adoption is, is there a domestic cloud technology company? <laughs> and if there is, then typically that um, can be a pro. If you're in a large country like the US, you've got all of the major tech companies, or you're in China with Alibaba or whatever it may be, um, but if you've got a domestic one which is trying to pitch a national cloud um, that just simply doesn't have the scale or the capabilities to um, really facilitate all of the potential um, that a true cloud can have, that ends up stymieing some growth. Because you get talking then about data sovereignty, you get talking about all the problems with the cloud rather than all the, the opportunities with it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's that's really something which has held New Zealand back a bit. and we. Kind of see the same in, in countries like um, Indonesia, where you know, all of those concerns about data sovereignty are still in place. And, and it's only really when you unlock your data and you realize that the cloud is more secure than your own data center because somebody's spending billions of dollars trying to protect your data um, rather than you know, a lot fewer zeros uh, protecting your own data center. Because um, when you unlock your data, then real, real exciting things can happen, not just in AI and ML, but insights and analytics and decision making and operational efficiencies and all that kind of stuff but it's that transition which really definitely slows organizations down yeah so i know that you know you're in the trenches talking to businesses about what you know what they want to do with ai next and i think we've talked about you know the difference between an AI platform and the idea of these deep engagements for one function or one task. But where do you see the biggest opportunity for AI going forward? Yeah, it's a question we kind of ask ourselves internally and we get get asked all the time, excellently too, is where where are you seeing the most um, traction? And and to be honest, 
there isn't one particular industry or one particular um, enterprise function which is really putting its hand up and saying, okay, we are now all in on this AI stuff. Uh, it's still really broad. I think, again, pre and post COVID, the big drivers are still, how do you make more money? How do you grow? Um, so therefore sales, marketing, uh, marketing intelligence, uh, marketing automation, and therefore into customer experience or user experience with chatbots and so on. That's that's driven kind of quite a lot of interest, but it, it was still on the side and wasn't really getting into the operational side of the business. Um, on the other side, you've got robotic process automation in some of the, the functional administration kind of areas, which again, I wouldn't call artificial intelligence, but some would, and that's certainly been a bit of a driver. But I think it's really... It's really going to be now in a post-COVID operations. It's going to be more around how do you make better decisions and with um, larger amounts of data. Um, how do you now reorganize your global supply chain with all that complexity of, of routes shutting down and, and manufacturing sites in different countries being a problem? So I think there's going to be a realization that fundamentally better decisions are only made with better data because you're more informed. And so AI, I think, really has an opportunity to play a role in that uh, reformation of, of decision-making in big enterprises. So I think there is going to be a bit of a, a shift of the user experience you know, into operational efficiencies. And I think that's going to be pretty fundamental over the next couple of years. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement with you. I think from a RPA standpoint, I think... AI has a role to play within process automation. I think it's an advisory role that gives people that need robotic process automation to do something additional information. I know that some people have implemented RPA with AI decision-making built into it, but I think that it comes up to my next question, which for me, the biggest hurdles that I see for business adoption is the explainability of what the AI is doing and why it's doing it. Yeah. And the repeatability so that it does, under the same circumstances, it does the same outcome or the same decision the second time. So I think those are the two big hurdles that I see for that 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 kind of enterprise-level adoption. Mm. And I think that's why the synchronization with the integration with process automation, whether that's automated or not, but I think there needs to be a much closer alignment with, with workflow and business processes with artificial intelligence. Because yes, you need to have a, an explainable, repeatable, understandable system for decision making. And especially when it's working on customer decisions or um, policy decisions or staffing decisions or whatever it may be, there's always going to be a concern that if it's a black box, how do we know if it's going to make the right decision next time we're faced with that same question? And so I think that's that's something which, for organisations like us, we we definitely believe that that you know white box or at least grey box kind of AI is going to be really important for our adoption, and why the big technology players who who sell AI as an API or AI as a service to be embedded into enterprise products, I think they're going to be a little bit more hamstrung when it comes to that kind of true integration with business processes, and um, because they're not willing to share. Uh, any of the uh, decision-making processes within their AI algorithms. So I think that's certainly going to be um, something that we're going to be looking to um, talk more about with organizations is once it gets into true operational effectiveness and operational efficiency, and when it comes down to guiding either predictive or prescriptive decision-making, then I think, yeah, the, the more transparent you can be with whether it be the outputs of the models or the, the decision trees um, or the feature extraction, whatever it may be, I think that's going to play a vital role in enterprise adoption. Yeah, I, I have several. And I, I know what's happening, even in the large players, is they're trying to figure out how they protect their products that they develop and the smarts around their products. We have that discussions there in Arcanum all the time about mm. <laughs> how do we how do we make it easy for people to adopt it and use the platform or use the the particular AI model without basically giving them the king keys to the kingdom and allowing them to go and replicate it and run it and run it and run it because we obviously the organization Arcanum spends a lot of money developing these models and and how to run the models and then it, you know if an organization comes along and 
pays one time to access the model and then never comes back to Arcanum, then obviously that's not a repeatable business model. Yeah, that is an interesting strategic thinking process to go through. Part of me is still in that, yep, we kind of, we're IP centric. We need to build something that can be sold multiple times and therefore we need to protect it. But then if we look at the way that even email went, right? When Hotmail came out and it was free, and everybody went, wow, this is the email service to have. And that viral kind of effect, network effect kind of happened. I, I think there is some rationale to thinking about um, AI in a similar way within an enterprise. Maybe not outside or between enterprises, but within an enterprise, how can you actually get a business model which doesn't penalize people for reusing models or reusing components? And actually, you do want it to spread through an organization. As we said before, it needs to be uh, a fundamental technology which is used across an enterprise. So perhaps by trying to lock it down and trying to make it hard to exploit or reuse, we're actually impeding our own growth within an enterprise. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's certainly a model which, again, you kind of need to fix it before you start getting it away. But certainly, you know, we've just got some products into the AWS marketplace as kind of a test as to. You know, will organizations begin to want to buy things from uh, marketplaces, you know, from a list of available uh, models or technologies? Is that the way the enterprise will actually go? Is they will have a platform and they then just want to pull in models for um, for use. And, and understandably, you know, there's a big drive within enterprise to go open source. You know, they don't want to have vendor lock-in. They, they don't want to be beholden to an IP holder they want to be able to understand it themselves for resilience, for contingency, for all of those nice things. So there is this tension between the kind of the purity of the data science community from an academic perspective that wants to get its algorithms out there and open sources the way versus those organizations like us that are trying to build a sustainable business. There is a natural tension there when it comes to the adoption of AI. And so I don't think that's been solved yet. And, and certainly, the big tech companies, you know, we see with Google probably once every two or three years, the stuff that they were working on five years ago suddenly becomes available open source. And maybe there is going to be that kind of cycle as well with the more recent AI developments. Yeah. So, I mean, you came out of the pharmaceutical world and the pharmaceutical world has always struggled with this, you know, how do they hold the patents long enough that they make the money back from developing the new drugs? And you know, Linus Torvald set the world on its head when he came out with Linux and just basically gave it away and then created a business around the support and care and feeding of Linux. So I think AIML is going to be somewhere in the middle. I think there's going to be a period of time where the intellectual property is owned within an organization from a subscription model. And then you're right, at some point, whether it's three years or five years, or the, the investment to develop the model has been at least initially recouped, then the support of that model beyond that three to five years becomes the income stream to develop the next set of models. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're fortunate in, in software that it's not like pharmaceuticals where you know, the average price when I was in the business 10 years ago, the average price of developing a blockbuster drug was more than a billion dollars. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was, you know, that we don't have to spend a billion dollars. Although if anybody wants to give me a billion dollars, I'm more than happy to take it. <laughs> but it, it's, I, I think, yes, that there's going to be time periods where the battle of platforms um, will be done uh, and then it will be the battle of the best model. And those models won't necessarily um, be... Um, the ones that have had the most R&D spent on them, they may just be a very smart academic somewhere which has figured out a way to build a different type of neural network or a completely different concept um, that makes things more accurate, more generalizable, more transferable, whatever it may be. And so I think as part of our longer-term strategy for Arcanum, um, it is to be able to build a, a true platform where we can, because we would have relationships and, and the platform deployed in enterprises, we can be that channel then to actually get the best models from wherever in the world they may be, from whatever academic or whatever person building algorithms in their basement, actually to get it adopted by enterprise. Because that's the real challenge is the big tech companies, whilst they have billions of dollars and they have you know, tens of thousands of very smart people working for them, it still doesn't mean necessarily that they can build the best algorithm. And that could come out of a university from anywhere in the world. 
but how do they get their really smart intellectual property into an enterprise? And so I think that's going to be, you know, part of the the broader adoption of Horizon Two is how do you get the best rather than just the most ubiquitous? How do you get the best? Yeah, I think that makes sense, and I, I think that's really the direction things are going. So, I I did have a question. So you have this is so Arcanum's the I think it's the sixth company you started or seventh. Oh, yeah, it depends which country. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine I'd need to double figures across the three continents, but in New Zealand, yes, I think in terms of legal entities, you're probably right. Six would be the current count. Yeah, and, and Arcanum has less than 20 employees right now? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So what do you see the role? I mean, in larger, larger organizations, the CEO role is, although not, I wouldn't say fully established as as what that role does but i think a lot of people see a ceo in large organizations in a particular space what have you seen as the ceo within the smaller startup organizations i mean i've been banging on on linkedin quite a bit about the difference between managers and and leadership and is that i mean as a ceo are you down in the trenches leadership wise i mean our kingdom's fairly flat from management structure, which is common in startups, but what do you see the role of the CEO in the startups? I think, I mean, one, one of the things to say is there's definitely a difference between a technical CEO and a non-technical CEO. Um, certainly, because I'm non-technical, I've had to be more leader than manager because I can't do what my team does. So it's had to be more um, inspiration than perspiration because I, I can't you know, bang keyboards and really help them do stuff. So my role really has been the storyteller externally. I've had to translate what's you know, the team of masters and PhDs um, within Arcanum, what they can build and connect that to the business. So my role has predominantly been that of evangelist and getting out there and, and talking to the clients. I think as we've grown larger, um, there's been clearly a management structure is needed, processes and knowledge management is required. Um, there's going to have to be some prioritization of decision making, got competing uh, priorities and resources and that kind of stuff. So for me then, it's it's really then a focus on, okay, what does what does leadership mean when you hit that? Typically, people talk of a critical number fifth where it kind of goes from that um, infantile kind of startup where you kind of know everybody, you can spend as much time as you like with them, moving up to the next level where there is you know, some level of management required. And so that transition has been, uh, has been challenging for sure. Coming from a time where you could know exactly what everybody was doing pretty much at any one time to maybe finding out at the end of every sprint, that has its challenges, but that's, that's also part of, of an emerging role for any type of company. But I think um, within, as the technology companies um, like ours get larger, then I've, I've got to face the fact, and I'm sure many other founding CEOs um, consider that themselves, is is the CEO role what I'm best at, or is there a different role that I should be doing within my own company? Um, just because you're the kind of founder doesn't executive operator, you know, you may have to be something else. And so that's um, certainly a journey that um, we're on, and I'm, I'm quite keen to continue on. Because at the end of the day, if you if you hold on to all the stuff that you think you should be doing rather than doing the stuff you want to be doing, um, then you're not necessarily going to be the most effective. Right, yeah. Because if you're doing the things that you want to be doing, more more than likely you're going to be better at those things and you get better outcomes. Exactly. That, that, makes, that yeah. makes sense. How- exactly. But, but that's, I mean, there's, there's definitely, no matter whether you're a tech company or more traditional business, the big challenges of business administration never go away. Right. And I think, you know, that's... That's always going to be the case. And again, um, coming back to COVID, you know, what, what's going to be a test now for any type of CEO is how to navigate six months, 12 months, 18 months. So it is going to be much more about leadership than it is management. But you also need to make sure that the, the managers that are within the business are actually encouraged to be leaders themselves um, because it's going to need quite a lot of rapid decision-making over the next few months as people you know, thrive in a very disrupted world. Yeah, speaking of COVID, so New Zealand has now been in lockdown for two weeks. How is Arcanum doing? Still trucking along? 
I mean, it's, it's been uh, most of the team started working from home, kind of self quarantine, and the week before the official lockdown. So we've kind of had three weeks really of now this remote working. And yeah, it, it feels like there's a good cadence. I think that there's still um, a lot of um, challenges um, around that isolation. I think working from home without COVID is very different to not being allowed to kind of leave your home <laughs> and working from home. So it certainly has its challenges, but we're not seeing anything slow down so far. I think like most organizations, the near-term pipeline um, completely disappeared or was postponed or is continuing as usual. I think it's the next few months when you kind of seek those next rounds of projects to come in. I think that's the bit where there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Um, but I've, I think we've got sufficient confidence that, uh, say, in a world of disruption where people realize data and decision-making is going to be key, um, I'm fairly confident that um, AI and organizations like Arcane are going to be in a good position. Yeah, I, th- I think so as well. And I think from sitting in the ground, I, the developers and the, the various team members have the work to do as long as the sales and, and engagements are being done at, dare I say, at your level. How are you finding those new engagements via video conference and phone calls as compared to, I mean, we talked about it at the very beginning, right? How Wellington is all about getting a coffee and sitting down with someone. But Arcanum's a, you're a multinational company now, so you're used to dealing with people and video conferences and phones. So have you seen that, the amount of video conferencing and phone calls tick up? Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting, actually. I think, and, and I'm guilty of the same thing. You end up kind of getting your schedule. When you're in an office, your schedule just gets kind of maxed out nearly all the time if, you, if, you, if you're not careful. And that could be with phone calls, could be with meetings both externally and, and internally. But typically, you kind of have an external meeting, typically you have that hour allocation. And then you've got the time to get to the meeting and time to get back and so on and so forth. And I think it's very easy for people's schedules to get over busy. You don't get all the quality that you that you would get. But I've certainly seen that change. I think people are, because cause you're talking to people in their private space, it just has a, a slightly different feel to it. It is like you're going to have a coffee with somebody. So it's quite interesting. It feels, in New Zealand anyway, it definitely feels slightly more personal. Like the early days, as we talked about, when you're kind of bearing your your soul to try and get those first coffees and those first few conversations, it kind of feels a little bit more personal now we're all doing those calls from home. And I think they are more efficient. I mean, I think you, if you know somebody is waiting um, in a Zoom lobby or in a Hangouts space or whatever it may be, you kind of do cut off at that time and switch over. Whereas, bizarrely, when someone's waiting for you in a coffee shop or in an office somewhere else, sometimes the timekeeping isn't the best. And so I, I'm seeing definitely a better productivity and a better um, effectiveness from online meetings than, um, than we were if we were just doing face-to-face. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I'm seeing too. And, and people tend to be, I think the word is, they, they tend to, it's easier, right? One of the things I think I've joked with you a couple times is people like to schedule back-to-back meetings with me from one side of Wellington to the other side of Wellington. Mm. Because everything's virtual now, because we're doing everything as video conferencing, people can actually schedule stuff back-to-back. The travel time between them is, um, is not there. Now, I know as a, a startup, especially the founder and CEO of the startup, that you work whenever there's you know, someone wants to talk to you, but uh, I'm finding myself sitting at my computer at 10 o'clock at night because I've been sitting there all day and just suddenly realize that it's 10 o'clock at night. So I, I think yeah, yeah. it's it's impacted me in that way. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, I, I've had times in my career where I've, I have you know, started a company, I've been the first person and, and definitely been you know, working because work and life are becoming one when you're kind of starting a business. I'm definitely seeing that the back-to-back thing for meetings is is extending. You know, it's, because we're dealing with North America and we're dealing with Europe, it's very easy to do kind of conference calls from 7 a.m. through to 7 p.m. As as you do, I have young kids too, and so you've got to find that dad time in the mix. But also I think we, we do have to be conscious that whilst it's kind of a bizarre kind of dark excitement that we're in at the moment with the kind of novelty of working from home and being able to do back-to-back calls at some point it's going to feel like burnout which yeah. we're all quite conscious of 
when we're having to run around the town and kind of avoid traffic. But actually, the the mental burnout that we we could be suffering from during this time period is pretty significant because it is pretty intense. I mean, already I know a, a number of times where you're trying to um, finish a conference call 15 minutes early just so you can go and you know go and have some lunch, <laughs> grab yeah. a drink, and come back again. So it does feel it's a very intense kind of feeling, but in, in a bizarrely relaxing space because you're at home. Um, you're obviously very familiar. You haven't had to you know, um, go on the commute, so you're kind of a bit more physically relaxed. But from a mental perspective, yeah, it feels even more intense than being in the office. Yeah, I think the fatigue. I think if we go, if we go much past four weeks doing this, yeah. I think the fatigue is going to start to set in, and then w- we might see uh, we might see some people needing to take some mental health days. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I, I certainly, I know um, from discussions with the team. Um, they're finding actually that they're they're getting scheduled into more meetings. There may be shorter meetings, but there is actually still more more meetings because everyone kind of assumes that they're working from home. They're kind of always there, which yeah. is bizarre. When you're in the office, you can see somebody with their headphones on, kind of focused. You can't see people at home doing that, so you kind of feel more free to book meetings kind of spontaneously. So I think yeah, the practices that we're doing now i think we're going to have to be very conscious that we don't keep them going for you know for months at a time because it's just not going to be uh, yeah good for people's mental well-being well I, so i've taken up almost an hour of your time i really do appreciate you talking to me today i, I think i don't say this very often although there have been two or three times that i have in the past but i think arcanum's one of those watch these spaces i think there's some really great things that uh, are coming out of Arcanum and, and the things that you're you're doing. So uh, again, I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. No problem, Sean. It's been a very enjoyable conversation as always with you. It's a good, far far ranging, far reaching set of topics. And I think in the the world that we're in now, you know, people like you to evangelize what's possible and also to you know, just cover these range of topics is really important. So I appreciate uh, yeah your positivity. We're super excited about what the future holds. I think with with a certain degree of trepidation as the rest of the world has, but we we certainly feel like we're in a good spot, and yeah, we'd and we'd love uh, love to have more of these types of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I may, uh, as things go on, as we progress, I may drag you back in if you have additional time in the future to do another podcast. I'd love to. I'd love to. It's definitely um, something which I'm beginning to look at as a personal project now. Is what is the new normal going to be when yeah. we move from this status of survival? You know, what's what's the world going to look like? And I think that's a, a topic which, at some point um, in the next few weeks, you know, a lot of people are going to start thinking about: is where do we still have a market? Where are our customers? What does decision making look like? What does our what does our company look like? You know, in a few months' time. So, yeah, that's certainly an area that I'd uh, yeah, be really keen to talk about. Yep, sounds great. Uh, awesome. You have a very good day, sir. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. Okay, so that was the interview with Asa Cox. I want to thank Asa again for taking the time on a Saturday to sit down and talk with me over Zoom. I think it was an exceptionally good conversation, and I think that the things that Asa laid out do set a direction, and I think they show how we can get the value that we need to get out of AI going forward. I would say at this juncture, everybody stay safe. Those of you in New Zealand, stay in quarantine, stay home, stay safe. And for those of you in the U.S. and Europe, stay home, stay safe. If anybody needs anything from me, they know how to reach out and and get in contact with me. And I am here. I'm working full time, but I am available if anybody needs anything. Thank you very much.